Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This is The Roy Green Show podcast. With me on The Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network are Alex Pearson, the host of On Point on Chorus Ontario Radio at the convention yesterday and was kind enough to spend time with us. Hi, Alex. Hello there. And Tasha Carradine from AM640 in Toronto, also national columnist and political savant. <laughs> you exaggerate, but thanks, Roy. <laughs> I'll take it. Hi, Tasha. Hi. So what? how are you feeling this morning? What was accomplished yesterday? Let's start with you, Alex. Well, I feel like um, the daylight savings has really screwed me up and I feel exhausted, <laughs> but I got a bounce in my step today. Let me tell you, I actually think we are witnessing a movement and... Uh, this is not going to be stopped. There is no voter discrepancy. Doug Ford won. And as I understand it, there is this question about 1,300 votes. But there actually is not uh, a question. And the fact that Caroline Mulrooney is out campaigning, the fact that people like Lisa McLeod have come out and congratulated, you know, the new leader, the fact that um, insiders that I'm hearing from have all offered their support, there is nothing to fight at this point. And I think it would be better for the party, and I think it would be better for Christine Elliott, um, who, who had the chance to extend the vote, let's not forget that, who I think had been given every kind of advantage by media coverage um, and certainly by the pollsters who had her ahead, the party would not have come out last night if this was not an absolute sure thing because Doug Ford was not their pick for leader. She very much had those odds in her favor. So they would not have come out if there were any questions. So this thing is over. The party must unite. And this fear-mongering that you're going to start to hear, oh, I don't know, a month ago, which is, you know, uh, that Ford will take your ovaries, that Ford will, um, you know, move us back to the Middle Ages, that Ford will do all these bad things, is nothing but noise. This is a movement of everyday people who actually really relate to Doug Ford and certainly just want a voice, and they want to take this province back. And I say, go get them. Tasha, what's your take? Well, I'm not as tired as Alex today, uh, but uh, I was watching it unfold last night at a distance, and I think that, yes, I agree, the party has to move on for their own sake. Um, I think this challenge, while I can completely feel for Ms. Elliott, uh, she is an amazing person, amazing politician, and this is a bitter, bitter pill to swallow. I think that at the end of the day, she has to do that because um, what you're seeing here uh, is it's, she's in a very difficult position because of what she did not do before the deadline passed, which was ask for an extension, which was exactly stand up for those people who are saying, I don't have my PIN, I don't have my ID, or I can't log in, or like really help me. Her campaign was you know, crickets on most of that, and the other campaigns were out there saying, and Doug Ford explicitly extend the vote, um, the injunction was, was decided against extending the vote. So, you know, to now come back and say this, I think it's just, it just, it just sounds really wrong. I think um, I agree with Alex, too, that Doug Ford is, um, you know, a figure who will appeal uh, to a lot of people. He is a polarizing figure, clearly, and half the party, or just under half the party, didn't choose him. But that's not to say that they won't back him in an election. The hatred for Kathleen Wynne among the rank and file is huge. And I think also, outside of Toronto, where Rob yes. Ford is less of a, of an issue because people were not, uh, you know, watching CP24 every day during his mayoralty or the dying days of it. Um, those people are looking at Doug Ford and they identify with him and they say, you know what, 
This guy is plain spoken. He connects with ordinary people. He is pro-taxpayer. He is against government waste. Um, you know, mm-hmm. he doesn't want those windmills there. I mean, there's so many issues that he can, yep. and he, you know, he will connect with people. So I think it's going to be a really interesting race. I think he has a very strong chance of winning. Yeah. He will win. And, I, and to add to Tasha, who I agree with fullheartedly, he was also a different person at that time. In the Rob Ford years, he was a big brother defending a little brother who was yep. going through an absolute nightmare opiate crisis that he was mocked for, but it ended up uh, destroying him. And um, and he was also running for mayor at a time when his brother couldn't. And so it was a very emotional time for Doug Ford. The Doug Ford I have met in the last few weeks is a much more contained Doug Ford. He's much more grounded. And while he's still the kind of everyday guy you can relate to, there is a sense of, uh, of growing that he has done. And, um, and I don't think he's to be underestimated. I will call it right now, he will win in a landslide because he has the ability, Roy and Tasha, to reach out to um, even those in the unions who will be fear-mongered by the upper brass of the unions. But he has the ability to reach out to the cops, the frontline nurses, the teachers and all those people in the front line ranks while taking up the upper brass that has been milking this province for years to their own gain. Those people have not had a voice. They like what he says, and they want the control to get their jobs back in the hospital, to start servicing the people of this province. And the teachers who want to just teach the kids that have been taken over by an ideologue, he will appeal to them. Yeah, yeah I, think, uh, I think the NDP vote is really the key here, and I think that yeah. a lot of assumptions have been made. The NDP vote will now flock to Kathleen Wynne because nope. they will want to block Ford uh, from, from, uh, from coming in. I think the NDP vote is not monolithic, and I think there will be people on the left, um, specifically you know, the downtown Toronto, uh, people who are hardcore environmentalists, people who are hardcore you know, rights advocates for various communities, they will go and they'll say, this is the end of the world. we got to vote liberal, which will, you know, hurt Andrea Horvath. But on the other end, Andrea Horvath is also going to be hurt, I think. Ford can appeal to the blue-collar union vote, the rank and file. I agree. And go to Oshawa. Go to places where, you know, there are people who will also say, hey, uh, I, don't, I don't necessarily buy the NDP or the liberal line that I'm hearing. I'm looking for someone who connects with me. This is the same kind of appeal Mike Harris had, too. It's this sort of every-person appeal, and I think that is Ford's greatest strength. His greatest yep. Achilles heel, though, is if he does say something nuts and crazy. And that's what he reined in during this campaign. He did, to a great extent. He was a different mm-hmm. Doug Ford than we saw before. You no, know, it's interesting. I, I was communicating with a good friend of mine last night by way of email, and he was confused about what's going on. He's a lefty. <laughs> And he was confused about what was going on, and, and I said, you know, just, just hang in, hang in, and hang in. But the point that he made consistently throughout our email exchange was he feels like he knows Doug Ford. Mm-hmm. He feels like Doug Ford's the kind of guy he could have come to a barbecue in his backyard, and he'd be very comfortable talking to Doug Ford as a person and talking to Doug Ford about issues. There's a familiarity he feels he has with Doug Ford that he doesn't have with anybody else in the well, political yep. spectrum in Canada. Let me say, when, when Doug Ford, I was at the uh, Manning Center conference, it was a con- conservative conference in Ottawa, uh, just a few weeks ago, it was at the start of the campaign, Doug Ford had announced all the candidates were there to talk to people. Doug Ford went to the bar. He went to the events. He went to and talked to the exactly that. He went among the rank-and-file conservatives who were there, pressed the flesh. He was the only one who, who did that. And mm-hmm. it was it's in his nature. He actually enjoys it. He hosts barbecues. So mm-hmm. I think that voter is absolutely right. That is his greatest asset in this campaign. Now that's a lefty. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. But he will appeal to them. You know, he's unpolished. He's scrappy. 
He speaks everyday language. Mm-hmm. That is a nightmare yeah. for Kathleen Wynne. But what I love about Doug Ford is he's not ashamed to be a conservative. He is not ashamed to say, I'm going to rein in the spending and lower taxes. I'm going to fight for the businesses, which have absolutely lost confidence in this province. And I think we're starting to see a shift and a pushback because people are finally realizing that this province is not working and our kids are going to pay the price for it dearly. And the North has been ignored. Um, Anywhere outside of the 416 have been completely ignored for 15 years and they are fed up. So anybody, I think, in the media, what they're not grasping and what they didn't grasp with Trump or even Rob Ford is that there is a movement afoot that people want to hear the voice. And that is exactly what this vote said is against the PC party, against, I mean, literally, they voted against the PC party, which wanted and he was helped in this. The picked one. Yeah. They didn't just vote for him. They voted for Tanya Granick Allen, the other outsider. Yeah. And, the, and yeah. her votes put him over the top. It was an anti-establishment vote. Yeah. And the liberals are the establishment. Let's, let's face yeah. it, in this election, the liberals have been there since 2003. So there's a lot of establishment to vote against. So the anti-establishment voter has a very easy pick in Doug Ford. Now, this has been coming for quite some time. This yeah. populist movement that we're seeing even develop further in Europe than we'd seen until the Italian vote a few days ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, this populist movement has been moving stronger, becoming stronger and stronger as people are becoming st- uh, more and more less willing to accept the status quo and have the ideologues run our lives for us and tell us that if we disagree with them, there's something fundamentally wrong with us, that we're either racist, we're bigots, we're, we're uninformed. People have said, I think now, and are saying it at the ballot box, enough. Yes, they are. And, Enough. And they should. I mean, it's shameful the way um, Tanya Granick Allen, who I may not agree with on everything, she has been, you know, painted as some kind of right wing alt right Exactly. I can tell you, Roy, as someone who's got, and Tasha might feel the same way, I got a young child in school. And while I love my teachers, and I always, I mean, I'm very blessed to have wonderful teachers, I do not like what I'm seeing as far as the ideological, the justice warrior, the white privilege, and all this crap being taught to these kids. The teacher's job is to teach them to write, to add, subtract, to, to learn the skills of life. And we are seeing it in the results of the text. Kids yeah, are they're not, not passing math. math. This is not some, like, conspiracy. They're not passing. Yeah. No, and they're, so, looking, yeah. they're looking for safe spaces and yes. just the, the general rejection so of anything. Yeah. But this is the, this is, and I'll go a step further. I totally. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Reading a piece in the Globe and Mail by Adam Redwanski, the uh, political columnist, and I'm with Tasha Carradine from AM640 in Toronto, Alex Pearson, who hosts On Point on the Chorus Radio Network in Ontario, and I'm reading his piece uh, by Mr. Radwanski. He writes in part, and he does the comparison between uh, Doug Ford and Donald Trump. Give me a break. Uh, Let me just read to the lines. predictable. But everything we know about Mr. Ford as a politician makes the parallels too numerous to overlook. There's the almost proud ignorance of the intricacies of public policy, the simple sloganeering and attack lines against the opponents, right down to his campaign's apparent attempt through social media to label Ms. Elliott Crooked Christine, the enthusiastic dabbling in social conservatism, despite not presenting the most devout of Christians, uh, not as the most devout of Christians, the habitual disdain toward the media, the reputation as a bully, including toward his own staff and behind-the-scenes allies. And there's one more sentence here. And more importantly, there are the parallels between what he offers and what is offered not just by Mr. Trump, but by populists in through much of Europe and elsewhere. 
validation to those who feel left behind by economic and social change and believe that corrupt elites, elites rather, elites if you like, across the mainstream political parties are indifferent to their struggles. A lot of people feel that way and with justification. The last part's mine. Well, you know what? I think that uh, populism appeals, yes, to people who feel that they aren't being listened to by elites. But what what uh, Ford is selling is very different than what Trump uh, is playing yeah. on. Trump is playing on anti-immigrant vote. He is also playing on, uh, you know, the fact that the hinterlands of the U.S. have collapsed economically. There are people who are addicted to OxyContin. who used to have jobs in steel mills and this kind of protectionist rhetoric. Doug Ford is not that at all. Doug Ford appeals to people who feel they're paying too much money to the government, the taxpayer. And he's also appealing to people, and this is where I take common cause of what Alex said and, and take it further. It's not just the school system where we've got social justice warriors instead of teachers. It's the government. The government has picked up on a lot of causes that many people will say, you know what, that's nice, but you're not really tackling the bigger issues of, you know, the fact that people are queued in hospital hallways instead of yep. getting treatment. You're not tackling the bigger issue that my kid can't add yep. two plus two, uh, but they're wearing pink bully shirts every other week. Yeah. It's, it's the focus that's been lost, and I think that's the general thing, and I don't think that's what Trump sells. Trump is a bully. Trump is, has a lot of negative stuff that Doug Ford doesn't have. Do you know what those yeah, words, I, you know, know those words, do you know what those words my Radmansky said to me? The left doesn't understand Doug Ford mm-hmm. any more than they understand Trump, really. But they don't understand populism. They don't understand why or they won't accept why what happened last night happened. They don't understand everyday people, and that's where they have lost mm. touch with all reality. Right. And uh, Ontario is much, much bigger than downtown Toronto and downtown Ottawa. You step anywhere outside of there, and people are really, really angry, Roy. And I guarantee you, they, you know, while people will mock and make fun of Ford Nation, there are more people that will join Ford Nation even quietly because they like what he says and they believe that he will make the change. Look, he will inherit a mess of diabolical proportions if he does win in June. There's no question we are not being told the real story of the dollars and cents. The fact that they're now running an $8 billion deficit in this election, I guarantee you it's a hell of a lot bigger than that. So there's no question it's going to be a very hard battle. But what I would ask people to do is step back, stop reading the rhetoric, start doing your own investigation and research. It is more than just sound bites. He's reached a populace in the social conservative movement who have been vilified because they believe what they believe. They are not to be vilified. They have every right to believe in what they do, and they should not be shunned for it. But he also speaks to a whole lot of other people, like those in the steel industry, who need someone to fight for them because he will go down to the Rust Belt, and he will make sure that our interests are protected. But just do your own research and take a look at the candidates. I've met every single one of these candidates because I worked on the campaign, so I worked closely with them. There's some very good talent out there. Look into your own people that you're going to be voting for and see who you've got. And you actually might uh, realize that they have more in common with you than what the media is telling Okay. You. I have to stop it here. It's fascinating to, to listen to both of you. You were both there yesterday. I was at a sort of... I, I wasn't. I got to watch it from a distance. Oh, you watched from a distance as well. <laughs> okay. I think, I think it's interesting that both Tasha and I, who I think are very different in the way we cover things, both have come to the same conclusion. Yeah. And we're both women who see that. Yeah. yeah. It's going point. to be very interesting to hear how women respond and react to all of this. I think I have a good idea. I've been hearing from people across the country about Doug Ford over the last several weeks, and certainly the national view seems to be from people who are engaged in politics and those who are just getting engaged. Boy, we wish we had somebody with that attitude here so we'd have a better choice. 
Tasha and Jason Kenny will be surely uh, not liked in Ottawa, that's for sure. Alex, Tasha, thank you both <laughs> very much. Pleasure, thanks. Take Ronnie. care, yes, bye-bye. Bye, guys. Tasha Carrot and Alex Pearson. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Dr. Yuri Felshtinsky joins us on The Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. He's an historian, history professor, and author of many books, including one that he co-authored with Alexander Litvinenko, the Blowing Up Russia, and it was while that was being done that Litvinenko was murdered by a Soviet agent in London. And so this week we have the story of Sergei Kripal, who was an officer of the Russian Military Intelligence Agency, GRU, who was convicted of high treason and uh, likely poisoned by nerve gas in the British town of Salisbury. Uh, Dr. Felstinsky has written about this particular uh, this issue, and um, he joins us uh, from Paris. Yuri, thank you very much uh, for the time. Where, where, where does this was this definitely Putin? Uh, if we have to choose between yes and no, I would say yes. And there are some pieces of information which indicates that Moscow is behind this attempt to uh, kill a former uh, Russian spy. Uh, First of all, the the history of his family is tragic. We should call it tragic now. His wife suddenly died in Britain in 2012, then his son suddenly died, something happened to him in Moscow in 2017, this is last year. And then, of course, he himself was poisoned uh, in Britain just several days ago, together with his daughter. So it looks like the whole family basically was sentenced to death. And um, since we have this you know, connection to Moscow. First, when he was exchanged in 2010, then with through the death of his son, I, I think it's reasonable to claim that we should be very suspicious and we should consider the possibility that Russia is behind. Uh, I just read uh, from your, your piece on uh, Sergei Skripal, just reading a few lines here. The 2010 exchange of Colonel Sergei Skripal for 10 Russian sleepers who were arrested in the United States was not what you would call a typical exchange. You go on for a few lines, and then I see it appears that from his first day in the United Kingdom, Skripal had remained in serious danger without realizing it, since no one has before touched the exchanged spies. So this was a this was a, a new move, if it was in fact well, Putin, right? Well, everything in this story is new. Uh, first of all. I believe this is the first time when a Russian citizen caught for spying for Britain in Russia was exchanged for Russian citizens caught for spying in the United States abroad. Uh, This never happened before. Usually you would exchange a foreign spy, a foreign citizen caught in Russia for spying for a Russian citizen caught for spying abroad. Uh, And... uh, they probably did not have choice between the, because they wanted to get those 10 sleepers back to Russia as soon as possible. You remember, I'm sure, that story 
Uh, it's included a famous Anna Chapman, which later paused for like everything, including Playboy, something like this. But uh, anyway, they wanted to get those 10 people back to Russia. They didn't have any foreign spies in prison, so they compiled quickly a group of four Russian citizens. Uh, the only serious spy in that group was Skripal. And it's very possible that when they done it, they realized that probably they're making a mistake because they're kind of inviting Russians to start to spy for foreign countries because if you know that there is a possibility that you are going to be exchanged at the end, then you really have kind of reasons to, to, to start spying. Um, that's probably why he was in danger. That's probably why in day number one they were thinking about killing him if the opportunity presented itself. And that's, I think, what was done. And the fact that they used poison is significant. Well, yes, because, you see, if you kill a person with a gun, then everybody knows that he was killed. Uh, if you throw him uh, out uh, of the window, everybody is going to be suspicious as well. But when you use poisoning, uh, this leaves you several opportunities to claim that murder did not take place. Because first you need to prove that he was poisoned. Then uh, we will have to prove that this poison came from Russia. This is going to be very difficult, of, of course, to prove because... Mm -hmm. Last time they used polonium against uh, Litvinenko, the first time, I guess, in 2006. But after that particular poisoning, they never used radioactive poisoning because they leave traces. When Alexander Piripovichny, another Russian, uh, was killed in London, they used different poisoning. And now I'm sure they use another poisoning. Right. And uh, we are going to have difficulties to, to prove it. And All then, right. of course, when we present uh, Putin with the facts, he will deny everything. Yuri, thank you so much for the time. I really appreciate you talking to us. Of course. Always. Thank you very much. All the much. best. Mm -hmm. Dr. Yuri Felstinsky, professor of history, Russian history, and he's an American citizen now. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Uh, new medical guidelines, new medical guidelines, Roy, concerning opioid addiction for this country. The doctors wrote the new standards which recommend treating opioid addiction with prescription medication like pharmaceutical-grade heroin. That's for people addicted to opioids, not the chronic pain patients. Some 70 million people living with chronic pain, often horrific chronic pain, on this continent who need opioid medication to provide some quality of life continue to face having their opioid medication slashed or entirely refused. And there are new patients every day. You never know when chronic pain could invade your life. So I had an opportunity to record an interview with Kate Nicholson, former United States Department of Justice human rights lawyer and former chronic pain patient who advocates for pain patients and advocates for the use of opioids and is writing a book about that. And she's also available for speaking engagements. Have a listen to Kate Nicholson, the former DOJ human rights lawyer on the issue of chronic pain. Kate, would you remind us, please, how chronic pain one day invaded your life and how opioids returned at least some quality of life for you? Sure. Um, I was working as an attorney 
in the Civil Rights Division of the Department of Justice. Um, I was just working one day when suddenly I had pretty severe pain in my back. Um, and pretty quickly my muscles seized and threw me out of my chair, and I ended up on the floor. Um, and that became my dominant posture for almost 20 years. It turned out that the reason was a surgical error when a doctor severed nerve plexuses in my spine. And I tried for about a year and a half all kinds of different sorts of treatments, from very integrative treatments uh, to uh, nerve ablations and blocks and infusions and even a repeat surgery, and nothing restored my function. And finally, my doctor said, you know, you really need to try taking opioids um, to see if that will help. Uh, it wasn't something I was especially eager to do, but I was out of options at that point. So I did, and they really did help me. Um, I was worried about being foggy and being unable to work, but um, that wasn't the case at all. They simply muted the pain enough that space opened in my mind so that I could work, and um, and I was able to continue as a federal prosecutor, um, arguing cases in federal court from a reclining lawn chair and uh, revising cases from a reclined position in U.S. attorney's offices all over the country, um, and drafting regs and policy. Um, and uh, so they were very helpful for me. So now what's the reality for chronic pain patients in the United States? You wrote a really extremely well-received piece that ran in The Hill in Washington. I think it was uh, passed along and repeated more than 20,000 times. What are the fundamentals that you wrote about, and what's the reality for the chronic pain patient in the United States today who's living with intractable pain? Well, they're pretty grim, uh, and that's really the reason that I decided to start writing and speaking about this problem, because people today are not given the privilege of the you know variety of different options, including opioids, that I was um, in the 90s and early 2000s. Today, partly because of guidance that was issued by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, um, which generally um, recommended that opioids be not first-line treatment and be given at the lowest dose for the shortest period of time, uh, those were all things that pretty much everyone agreed with. They were not problematic. But they also made two fairly specific recommendations, one for acute pain because they wanted to um, they wanted to prevent what, what we've realized is the bigger problem in the opioid epidemic, which is called diversion, when people who don't have the prescription for pain medicine go into someone's medicine cabinet or borrow from family or friends or buy on the street. They recommended that people only get pain medicine for three to seven days for any acute care. And then they also recommended um, that pain medication not be given over a certain dosage for anyone on chronic pain and that people, the doctors should sort of assess current pain patients to see whether the risks outweigh benefits. All of those were just guidance, were not requirements, um, and the CDC was careful to at least say, you know, these things need to be balanced in individualized healthcare. The problem in the United States and in Canada as well um, is that those guidelines were enacted uh, into law in a number of states. And uh, what's happening is that people can't fill their prescriptions for pain medicine anymore, 
And there's also been a real uptick in uh, prosecution of doctors, often very good doctors, uh, on the, basically just on the basis of how much they're prescribing or the dosages they're prescribing. So that's the background, sort of a long way of getting through the background. And basically what's happening today is that people who have chronic pain, especially people who've been on opioids and stable for years with no sign of abuse, are being forced tapered off of them or are unable to get the pain medication filled. So it's a very it's a very dire situation. It's causing people to lose their ability to work and function. Uh, it's causing you know medical deterioration, and there have been several notable cases of suicide as well. This is something we've talked about as well. The uh, the increase and in doctors talk about this to each other, and they've talked to me about it off the record. An increase in in suicides. And it becomes yes. the only option for some chronic pain patients because they're suffering without medication to meaningfully reduce their agony is unlivable. And, Kate, we don't approach victims of a traffic accident who've suffered severely broken arms, legs, and backs and toss them a few aspirin and tell them to suck it up, which is yeah, basically that's exactly what's being done. what our attorney general said. <laughs> right. That's why I, I, I knew I was quoting him. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly what he said. He said, take a few aspirin and go to bed. And, I mean, the problem is that it's a real misunderstanding of, of intractable pain, which has a quality of life index very similar to late-stage cancer. Um, people can't just suck it up, bear up, and move forward. It's not possible. And when they're taken off of pain medicine and have no ability to work, suicide is becoming a, a, a very sort of predictable result. One positive step is that the Veterans Administration in the United States, um, Office of Veteran Affairs, uh, was one of the first to actually enact some of these CDC guidelines as their new mandate. Um, they even provided alternatives for people. They provided integrative care, but they did taper people off of opioids. And they have a finding out that, at least an initial abstract out, that showing that it did nothing to decrease overdose deaths but it did have a dramatic escalation in suicide mortality. The Canadian model of, I'll call it mistreatment, of chronic pain patients is based on the CDC policy, and that yep. model is the work of a self-anointed group of doctors who call themselves PROP, Physicians for Responsible Opioid Prescription or Prescribing. How did they become so influential? You know, that's, that's a... An interesting question. I mean, I think that uh, they had connections to the person who's the current head of the CDC. They'd worked together before. I think their solution is a very appealing one to a lot of people. If we get rid of opioids, we have no overdose. Is, is that's at least the way the story goes. Um, it's a it's a fairly simplistic solution. The problem is that most of the overdose deaths, at least in the United States, are not for prescription pills. Um, in 2016, you see the headline a lot in the, in the news about 60,000 overdose deaths, but about just over 9,000 of those were related to prescription pills outside of uh, illegal fentanyl and heroin. So, you know, we're, we're not really even tackling the problem. But I, I think Prop, uh, you know, I think Prop had a nice, easy answer for people. We certainly need to deal with overdose crises, um, and if it's easy enough just to get if getting rid of the pills will do it, that became very appealing. Uh, Dr. Jane Ballantyne is a U.S. anesthesiologist 
who has been retained as a keynote speaker for the Canadian Pain Society Conference in May in Montreal. And Dr. Ballantyne's topic is what does the opioid epidemic mean to pain management? Dr. Jane Ballantyne's belief is, as you well know, Kate, is that patients in terrible chronic pain should just be told to live with it. Barry Ulmer, the executive director of the Chronic Pain uh, Canada.com, the national organization which speaks for pain patients, has called on the Canadian Pain Society to uninvite Dr. Ballantyne. They've refused, and Dr. Ballantyne is a member of PROP. She is, yes, she's one of the key members, along with Andrew Kalani. Um, and yes, yeah, she does preach, as you said, what they call pain acceptance, uh, which is basically sort of what the Attorney General said to us a less messed up fashion. Um, yeah, I mean, right now these people have year of authority. And again, I think it is largely because it's a fairly simple solution. But it doesn't meet the current problem. I mean, there may have been overprescription of pain medicine in the, in the 90s that made the medications more available. Again, it's important to be clear that it wasn't chronic pain patients who were largely overdosing or, or subject to addiction. The rates of addiction among chronic pain patients are relatively low. Some of the reviews show them at lower than 1%. Even the CDC shows them as varying. And uh, Volco, who's our uh, national drug abuse, uh, the head of the National uh, Council of Drug Abuse, uh, both said it was between 0.7 and maybe 8% of the population of people who received medication for for chronic pain ever go on to abuse them. Um, But the problem is that they ended up in in medicine cabinets and became diverted. Mm -hmm. But that's not the problem today. No. Today, it's really illegal heroin and fentanyl, and arguably, it's a correlation. You can't make a direct connection, but arguably, all of these opiate limits are pushing people um, onto the more dangerous drugs. I, uh, I saw something on Twitter a few months ago where someone indicated that there was a woman they knew who was living with terrible pain. Her doctors had cut her off her opioids, and her street corner drug dealer took it upon himself to become her doctor because he was concerned about her, and he was taking care of her with illegal drugs. So the, uh, the compassion seems to be coming, at least in that case, from a quarter that you wouldn't expect it. Now, in Canada, if I understand this correctly... There's a new overdose strategy for opioid users, and the idea is to provide opioids to opioid addicts. Well, that helps the addicts, but what does that do for the 70-plus million North Americans who are living with chronic pain, who were prescribed opioids, who need the opioids, who don't receive them or receive them in significantly reduced quantities or amounts? Do these people now have to announce themselves as addicts? It It really becomes ridiculous ridiculously dangerous it's certainly ridiculously dangerous for someone to uh have to go to the street because uh the the fentanyl and heroin and, and street drugs that are available are exponentially uh stronger much more dangerous and if you're not receiving you know appropriate dosage in a medical care setting then you are going to have problems um it's also uh, yeah i think we will see pain patients posing as addicts uh, I absolutely do, because people need relief from pain and they need the ability to function. Okay, thank you so much for the time. Always good talking to you. Okay, thank you, Roy. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Now, uh, let's begin with this. Canada Revenue Agency. Now, I remember 
in this very studio a number of years ago. We've been doing a series of programs on CRA and how they dealt with small business. And there was a former small business owner that CRA had driven into bankruptcy sitting in this studio. And he told a story about having lost everything and was sitting in the shell of what once was his home. All the furniture was gone. Everything was gone. He didn't even own the home any longer. It had been taken from him by CRA and their agents. But he was sitting in the, in the home at night, and he was in a, in a small room where he'd previously had a, an office. And he was sitting with a shotgun pressed against his head. And that's what CRA had done to him. And we had heard story after story after story from small business owners who had been treated absolutely abysmally by this federal agency. Now, I'm just reading that their employees love them because they have some great programs for employees. But not so great in dealing with the average Canadian. You've seen the story, perhaps, and heard the story of um, Tony and Helen Samaru of Nanaimo. They... Uh, own a restaurant, they own a uh, um, nightclub and a motel, and uh, CRA accused them of skimming $1.7 million from their restaurant. A federal judge, federal court judge, was so disgusted that uh, he convicted CRA of malicious prosecution and ordered the Canada Revenue Agency to pay a million dollars in damages to Tony and Helen Samaru. Is it over? I don't know. I don't know what the rules are that uh, CRA plays by. Steve Callaher does, and he joins us on the Roy Green Show. And uh, Steve is the lawyer for Tony and Helen Samaru. Steve, thank you very much for taking the time. Happy to do so, Roy. Can you give us uh, just background information on on how this began and and what CRA was demanding and what they accused your clients of? Well, we'd probably be here for a week if I were to give you the blow-by-blow. This started for the Samaroos 12 years ago. They've been in court uh, facing uh, charges for a decade now. They've been paying lawyers, uh, both in the criminal court and in the tax court for now over a decade. But if I could just comment on your introductory remarks about the devastation that's wrought oftentimes by the CRA, it seems they don't have a sense of proportionality. Everyone is Al Capone. They go for the juggler and devastation on uh, routinely small business people, but they just don't seem to have a governor, a something that will say, hey, don't destroy these people. If, you, if, they, if they misstated their taxes, give them an appropriate punishment, but don't destroy them and don't revel in it. You go to their webpage and you'll see that they uh, list the numbers of millions of dollars that they've collected from taxpayers and the number of years that they have put Canadian citizens in jail last year. 
And, and the letter of direction from the Prime Minister is for CRA to te- treat Canadians like clients. It's evident that they treat them like prey. And those notches on their gun that they put every year in their stats of Canadians imprisoned. Think of another, is there another uh, liberal Western democracy that does that? Do the RCMP uh, issue a bulletin at the end of the year of how many hundreds of years that they've managed to imprison people? Uh, the proposition is, well, people, people have to pay their taxes. That's true. Well, they can't go around robbing and killing one another either. It doesn't justify what's taking place here with the CRA. And that is the state, the government of Canada, is licensing them to inflict fear in the minds and hearts of Canadians. So that the justification is so they will pay their taxes. And so they devote all of this time for advertising the malevolence that they're inflicting. I think their default position is they feel that just about every Canadian is trying to scam the system, whereas the truth of the matter is that the majority of Canadians feel that there is a bill to be paid in order to live in our society and take advantage of what is available. So we have our fair share to pay, but we don't need to be, don't need to be hunted uh, based on wanted dead or alive posters. Where, where do they get off? trying to legitimize the presumption that we're tax thieves. That's how they begin. That's treating Canadians like clients. It really is outrageous. When, you know, I started out by saying y- your comment about that fellow with the shotgun. Never for, I will never forget that. Well, you sat I here to my right. Since this judgment come, has come out, I can't say, a hundred, maybe more, emails and telephone calls. And some of them are very frightening. I had a, an email from a woman on Friday night. I read it, and I thought, whoa, this person needs help. She was talking herself into a corner. She was saying she couldn't pay. The interest was building up and up. And, and this is a small businesswoman. I... I I got back to her, not as a lawyer, but just as a human being, to try to get her in touch with people before, you know, something serious happens here. But the level of fear that's in the tone of these communications, people think that I can do something. I can't do something about this sort of thing. It's going to take political intervention. Political intervention born of the recognition They have to listen, not to me, not to the commentators, but to the judge's ruling. He's a Supreme Court judge of the province of British Columbia. His language is measured and thoughtful. And he's telling us the culture of the CRA that exhibits glee in the ruination of those that were wrongly prosecuted is deeply troubling. That's not a canary in a gold mine. That's a fire alarm. 
and we there are politicians it's a sick cash cow they've got to risk killing it nonetheless they your, have to do something about this yeah your clients were charged uh, they faced 21 charges correct right and they were acquitted of each and every one of them every one of them they were rubbish they were thrown out in provincial court after, not, on the, not on a technicality, Roy. We spent 19 days in there, 18 of them on the Crown's case, introducing the evidence, one witness after the other, one uh, binder of, of uh, accounting uh, machinations after the other. Devastated. There was no case. And Tony Samaru got on the stand, subjected himself to cross-examination. All of their cockamamie theories put to him. The judge looks at him and says, what are you talking about? I believe him. It's not on a technicality. It's not on a reasonable doubt. They had no case. And what did they do? On the same facts, the same witnesses, the, 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 the same case they run on a parallel basis in tax court usually when there's an acquittal uh, rendered in in criminal court the tax court will be uh, discontinued now that's what i'm told i'm not a tax lawyer but it makes sense if it's if it's dismissed on the merits rather than some technicality say okay maybe we've got it wrong we move on but not here oh no they double down and they've got the same witness, the same evidence, the same penalties that will ruin the Samaroos, take their home and their businesses just as, just as effectively as the criminal trial, only they don't risk imprisonment, just being left on the street penniless. That's what the CRA is threatening to do to them today. Now, you say to yourself, this can't be. Nobody could could exercise such predatory, parasitic judgment. But that's them, and that's what they're doing. And they'll look you right in the eyeball and say, so what? We've got the power to do it, and you are going to learn one thing, Mr. Samaru and Mrs. Samaru. You win against us, you lose anyway. We'll break you, we'll exhaust you. It doesn't matter to them what it costs. They're paying for the persecution of the Samaroos with our money. You're listening to The Roy Green Show. Heard weekends from 2 to 5 on 900 CHML. Just let me just uh, read a couple of lines to bring us uh, on stream if people are just joining us on this disturbing story. This is from Global News. It's not over yet for a B.C. couple who was awarded $1.7 million in damages after a B.C. Supreme Court judge ruled the Canada Revenue Agency destroyed their livelihood. According to the family's lawyer, Steve Kelleher, Tony and Helen Samaru now face going through it all again in the Tax Court of Canada, despite being acquitted of all 21 charges in 2010. Awful. Awful. And they have the power. So the charges, Steve, are dismissed, and yet here they go again. So please carry on. Well, not only were the charges dismissed, they were dismissed years ago. The malicious prosecution has overtaken that. And the Supreme Court judge, not the provincial court uh, criminal judge that acquitted them and on the merits, um, 
finding that the prosecution was based on voodoo accounting, uh, a Supreme Court judge now after a full uh, trial has found, uh, has gone one step uh, further uh, to find that there was no evidentiary basis to begin the prosecution and that it was done by misrepresenting evidence, concealing evidence, and attempting to imprison these people knowing full well there wasn't an evidentiary basis for it. Uh, and, and after that, as we stand today, the CRA is considering whether to appeal the Supreme Court judge's ruling, which I might say I, I strongly suggest to your listeners that they go to, go to the Supreme Court of B.C. webpage and have a look at the ruling. It's very readable. Uh, it's simple, straightforward. Everyone can read it and everyone can understand exactly what's being said here, and you don't have to rely on commentators or interpreters. It's there for everyone to see. Uh, and what you'll see now is the CRA is sitting back in their deliberations deciding whether to take another run at the Sam Ruse on an appeal of that judgment and whether to continue their prosecution in tax court. Remember this, they don't spend a nickel on lawyers, and any judgment that's rendered uh, against the CRA comes out of the pockets of Canadian uh, taxpayers. They could have settled that case uh, on the first day the pleadings were filed, and they said no. They ran it on the basis that we've done nothing wrong, and we're just going to go ahead, obscure, obfuscate, appeal every interim ruling, uh, deny, and then when the rubber hits the road, they're thinking about an appeal. It's mind-numbing to listen to this. Because the well, fear factor... Well, it's not a one-off, Roy. Yeah, I know, I was about to say, the fear factor for everyone in this country has just been multiplied um, over and over. This is, uh, this is an organization that has no conscience, clearly. Roy, the thing is that all the folks out there who felt the lash of this crowd are ashamed... They're ashamed to be accused of being tax evaders, so they don't say a word. But everybody that's listening to this knows somebody mm -hmm. who was hammered ruthlessly by these people. Mm -hmm. The intention is that we're afraid of them. They enjoy that. Steve, I thank you so much. People won't, they won't speak up. Because they're ashamed to say, well, you're a tax evader. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Let me, uh, let me see what happens. I'll open the phone lines for a little while here. And uh, I do thank you for joining us. I, I have to take a break, but I, right, Roy, I, I had no I, idea. I mean, I, I knew the nuts and bolts of the story. Yeah. I didn't know a lot of the things that you shared with us. Yeah, I've got to I've got to leave you now. So thank you very much for giving me the opportunity. Well, thank you. For I just hope that they do the right thing here and leave these people alone. Leave them alone. Yeah. Hashtag leave them alone. Steve Kelleher, the lawyer for the Samaroos. The Roy Green Show, weekends from two to five on nine hundred CHML.